discussion with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. The book of the week for this week is Crib Sheet, A Data-Driven Guide to Better, More Relaxed Parenting, from Birth to Preschool by Emily Oster. And uh, Emily Oster is an economist, so she even says how she writes about parenting in a way from a economic type of mindset related to decision-making. And I'm just about 30, 40 pages in. And she makes it very clear that it's not a book that's going to tell you you have to do this or you have to do that, but that she's going to present the data on different uh, important topics that arise for new parents of babies up until preschool. Uh, and a lot of times it's about you making the choice that makes the most sense with you with all the information. So you have the data based on research saying if something is good or bad or the pros and cons about different things. And then also you have to look at yourself, your life and preferences you have and find what makes the most sense for you. So actually I really like how um, it's been written so far very much clear and uh, concise and gets to the point um, and presenting the data in a way that allows the parents to then make the decision they think is best. And so I'll share that with you on Wednesday of next week because Monday uh, here at Radio Hamra we won't be doing live programming because of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. It's a national holiday, so we'll be closing. Actually today, uh, January 15th, is his actual birthday, um, but we'll, it's always celebrated the same Monday of the month of January so that'll be on Monday. So I'll talk about that book next week. Also wanted to make a very brief comment about um, what's been going on in Iran. And not just for Iranians, but for everyone, it's it's hard to avoid news and commentary and people's social media posts about Iran. Um, first and foremost, wanted to acknowledge all the lives that have been lost recently. It's very heartbreaking and um, sad and uh, you know every day I'm seeing images that are breaking my heart about what's been going on there um, at the same time I also don't want to say too much I think people at times want uh, people like me who does get the opportunity to talk in the media in some way to express some strong opinions about these things um, and I do have some but especially when it comes to what should be done I, I really have to be honest with myself and with you and say, I don't quite know. Uh, I know we care a lot and people are very passionate about these things. So they want to say, we have to do this. There needs to be this type of intervention or no intervention or whatever it might be. Um, but I know that I don't quite know what's the right path to get to an outcome, which I hope is that things will be better for the people of Iran. And of course, uh, everyone around the world as well. But for the people in Iran, I do wish for the best. I don't know what that right path or best path will be, but I'm hoping for that. 
um, and I definitely don't claim to know what's the right next step, uh, but I hope that, um, as always, we can communicate about these issues rather than just argue and fight. And so, especially with social media, these things become very polarized. Either you're pro this or anti this. And if you're pro this, it also means you agree with a bunch of other things. And if you're anti this, you have to agree with these other things as well. When these situations are much more nuanced, so I'd rather there be space for discourse and that we can communicate and not see things as black and white dichotomies of um, war or no war or pro-Trump, anti-Trump, pro-Iran, anti-Iran. These things are much more complicated than that. But just wanted to make a brief comment um, on that situation and everything that's going on. Uh, switching gears quite a bit. Uh, it's still early in the new year. And a lot of people have New Year's goals and resolutions. And maybe you've already broke them or you've already uh, given up on them. Um, I've talked a bit about that. And I think the mindset that people bring to setting New Year's resolutions uh, is mixed with a few things that are not helpful, like wishful thinking, imagining our future self as someone different from our own self, thinking we'll become this totally new person. And in recent shows, I've talked about how I don't like that catchphrase, new year, new me, or new you, um, where people think they're going to become this completely different person. You're going to be you. You can definitely grow, but you're not going to become something totally different. And very importantly for me, it doesn't you shouldn't think that way because it's saying you somehow don't accept the you that you currently are. And so you should love and accept yourself as you are while at the same time wanting to grow. And so along those lines, I came across an article by David Robson. And if his name sounds familiar to listeners to the show, he wrote The Intelligence Trap, which uh, was a book of the week a few years ago. I think the subtitle was something like, why smart people do stupid things or something like that but it was actually a very good book but a book an article he wrote that appears in the guardian uh, is titled well-being six ways to put a smile back on your face in 2020 and now even though it says smile back on your face you might be familiar with my quote-unquote war on happiness as i sometimes call it where i don't think we should just be focused on feeling happy all the time but actually in the article he addresses that in a way because there is some uh, acknowledgement of not just focusing on positive feelings. So he gives six practical ways that are based on his own personal experience, but also research onto these different um, issues that can help us be a little bit more emotionally healthy, not just happier, but have a better year or become better versions of ourselves over time um, by doing these six things. So I wanted to go through that article because I did feel like I liked the approach it also had the mindset that it's not you're going to just become this totally new person and transform, but that we can grow and make small steps in the right direction. So the first thing he recommends is about differentiating your feelings. And so uh, this is something when you've heard me talk about emotional intelligence. We had Mark Brackett's book, Permission to Feel, a few weeks ago, um, that when we are good at differentiating between our feelings. First of all, being in touch with our feelings, we know can be helpful, but not only just, oh, I feel good or I feel bad or I feel mad or happy. That can be good, but the more we can actually be uh, able to differentiate between specific feelings, as he puts between excited or ecstatic or irritated or frustrated, people who are better at pinpointing um, exactly what they're feeling actually do better than people who just 
can't tell as much um, what they're feeling. So they kind of know I don't feel good, or they say mad for every type of feeling that's in a certain realm, but they don't have a good way of differentiating. And so people who um, are able to differentiate better are actually at less risk of developing depression, according to one study. And the good news is, uh, like a lot of things related to emotional intelligence, it's something that we can improve with practice. The more you pay attention to your feelings, the more you also become familiar with more words to describe your feelings. That might sound strange, but actually coming up or learning the words can have an impact because then you can use those words and they have more significance to you. But we can practice differentiating our feelings um, and it does have benefits. The second one, and this relates to what I was saying about not just trying to be happy all the time, uh, is embracing your bad moods. And this might seem counterintuitive to a lot of people and people actually, I think, don't like hearing things like this to embrace your bad moods because so much of what people think we're supposed to do and when they look for motivational um, quotes or motivational speakers and gurus is someone who's going to make them feel like they're happy all the time or give them the life hacks or the tricks to always be happy and always feel good. And so a lot of what we do is when we have a bad feeling or something bad happens, we quickly come up with ways to tell ourselves we shouldn't feel bad or it doesn't matter or I don't care. You hear that a lot. Like, oh, why would I care that this happened? But really, a lot of times we do. and We want to be in touch with those. And actually, the more we resist them, there's kind of a psychological cliche that what you resist persists. But there's truth to that. The more you try to fight your bad moods or get away from them, or um, numb them or whatever it is you might do and try to or trick yourself that you're actually not upset, the more they persist and are going to affect you negatively. But when we can actually embrace them, we can see that they're not so scary. We can allow ourselves to feel what we're feeling and also recognize there can be something good there. As I've mentioned uh, before, information or, or our feelings are information. Your emotions are going to tell you something. So if you realize you're angry, that can be good because that means that you probably feel wronged by someone or feel like something unfair happened. And so you want to be aware of and in touch with those feelings because they'll give you information. And as I've mentioned a bunch of times recently, it doesn't mean whatever you're feeling, you immediately act on and let your feelings dictate your behavior. But having that awareness of what's happening can be part of the information you take into account to make your decision. And overall, being in, in touch with our lower moods, some of our sad feelings, um, can be good for us in getting in touch with ourselves and also in connecting with other people. The third one he mentions is talking to yourself. And he means this um, in the way of creating a little bit of what is called psychological distancing. So let's say you're upset and rather than just staying within yourself so strongly and feeling the feelings maybe too strongly where it overwhelms you and you might react, you can create a little bit of distance by thinking, okay, his name is David. So he said, David was angry because, or David is angry because. So that distancing can allow us a little bit of space where we can respond rather than react. So these strategies can help us, or sometimes we think about, imagine if it was a friend. And this also can help us be more compassionate to ourselves. Sometimes we'll do something we feel so bad, like, oh, you were so stupid, you're such an idiot, why did you do this? And that negative self-talk starts to come in. But actually, if we think about a friend, we probably wouldn't say those things to them. We would be much more compassionate and understanding to them than we are at times to ourselves. So that can help in that way as well. The fourth one is writing. And so, uh, you know, you hear a lot about journaling and people 
doing diaries or those kind of things as a kid, but also journaling as they get older. For a lot of people, they don't like this, but there is research showing that what you can call quote-unquote expressive writing, somewhere from 15 minutes to an hour about something that's upsetting you or something you're dealing with, can boost emotional resilience, as they call it, and also have lasting improvements in your mood and physical health. So it can be helpful to write about what you're feeling, what you're going through. One of the uh, researchers um, does recommend not overdoing it, that he was saying only do it three or four times about a particular issue, but that it can be helpful. Now here I'll also add, because I know I recommend journaling to clients at time and uh, at times and they sometimes don't like it. And so anything we do, it has to be something that resonates or feels right for us. Sometimes we can make suggestions to someone that just feels so off that it's not the right thing for them. While at the same time, we might want to try something before we, no pun intended, write it off as something that's not going to be helpful. So you can try journaling. In general, I would always recommend writing it by hand, pen and paper, very old school in today's day and age, and people might like typing it and it feels easier and they can keep track of it easier. But there is something more connected uh, when you write with your hand, pen, and paper than when you're typing into your phone or on a keyboard. So that's also something to keep in mind. The fifth thing he recommends is an interesting one, is adopt a new ritual. And so there's research showing that when people do a ritual, even if it seems meaningless, it does um, reduce some of their anxiety when it comes to performing. So they had people that were going to sing karaoke, do something that was um, a little bit symbolic, but right, I think it was drawing a picture of themselves and then putting salt on it and then throwing it away. Um, but just doing that ritual allowed them to feel a little bit less anxious. And so it also reminded me of a lot of athletes. They have pre-game, pre-game rituals, and we oftentimes say this means they're so superstitious, which probably is the case. There's a lot of anxiety there. But it also um, makes sense as we're seeing that it could help you by doing a ritual to get you in the right mindset. Even when I start my show and I say my little thing at the beginning of the show and I pretty much say it the same every time it's kind of like a ritual that gets me in the right mindset of starting the show and if I didn't do it I think I'd feel a little bit off so rituals are not these things we should not like because we think well it's meaningless or it's stupid or irrational Uh, it makes sense we do that or even when teams do rituals together we know that it could bring them together and align them more and make them feel more unified It's not necessarily the specific parts of the ritual that are good or bad, but doing something together or just doing something that helps. And the sixth thing he recommended was drop your defenses. And it it seems like what all of us could benefit from is giving ourselves a little bit space to recognize we have problems, we have issues, and to not create defenses about them. Try to be more open to them. And to me, what's underneath this is having a more compassionate relationship with yourself. I talked about the book, uh, How We Work on Monday, and there was a lot about self-compassion in that book, but it is so important for us to have that compassion. And yet again, we see how when we are too hard on ourselves, we actually are more likely to resist seeing problems or issues that we might have. So people think, no, you can't be too loving and compassionate because then you're going to be too easy on yourself. But actually, when you are more compassionate and you are not so afraid of doing something wrong or recognizing you're doing something wrong because you have that loving, compassionate relationship with yourself, then you're not as afraid to face things, to face mistakes, shortcomings, insecurities, whatever it might be, because you can approach it with a loving attitude. You don't have to beat yourself up once you find it. And that makes you more open and okay with facing those things. So the more we can recognize 
those limitations within ourselves and be less defensive and more loving with them, we can actually help ourselves grow and stop some hurtful behaviors, hurtful to ourselves and those around us. So um, I like this article because it wasn't something that was saying how to change yourself completely or how to revolutionize yourself or transform yourself or become this new you, but it was some small things we can do to improve our overall emotional health uh, and well-being. So um, this article is by David Robson in The Guardian. It's called Well-Being, Six Ways to Put a Smile Back on Your Face in 2020. All right, let's go to our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Uh, I'm good, thank you. If, now, uh, if, if you may, I think when we talk before the break, we're going to be talking on English, if that's okay. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. Um, the reason I'm calling, I have a question regarding my four years old, okay. my son. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I started him in Montessori program when he was two years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to his teacher, he's very smart, he's very stubborn, and um, like for four years old, he know already how to write, how to uh, pronounce ABC, how to count to 100. Um, the, re- the reason I'm calling, a couple of days ago, one of the mothers told me that for kindergarten, it's better I take him to the other private program because academically, supposedly, that program is more strong than this program. When I tell my son that, hey, should I change your school? Let's look at the new school. He's crying Mm. and yelling, no, don't change my school. At the same time, my husband thinks for first grade, we should try public school because it's more kids in public school and it's better for him. Um, So I'm confused. I don't know (laughs) what to do. Should I change his school? Should I send him to... uh, first grade in public school because at the same time if his really education wise is very high the first grade in public school maybe he become lazy and he doesn't want to study because he knows everything already uh just tell me what to do yeah <laughs> well you know what you said at the end tell me what to do probably i'm not going to tell you exactly what to do and i understand it's um it, it feels very important and of course your son's ed- education is important but more than likely there isn't going to be a right answer that's so right and the other ones are so wrong. And so I also say that I know maybe you don't like to hear that part, but part of it I hope you like to realize that take the pressure off of yourself a little bit that it's not that there's some clear right answer and if you make another choice it's so bad. So um, I do want to make that point. Now one other thing, the academics does matter in a way because I see you're saying your son might be very advanced and very smart, and we don't want him to get bored. And so this is a challenge you have not just when it comes to his schooling, but if he is more advanced in an intellectual type of a way, you will make it will uh, take more effort from you and your family to make sure he's engaged and interested in things and give him things to be interested in. Um, but I'm not so worried that if he goes to public school, he's going to be bored and lazy um, because he's going to know so much. We'll see if he if he does. Then you can figure out what to do there. Generally, I don't like 
skipping grades and things because I think socially they face a lot of challenges when you do that. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm not so worried about him going to a public school and being uh, over uh, underwhelmed, I guess, or become bored. Now, I know when you ask him, you said he cries, and we do want to respect that a lot. It also makes me wonder if, in general, when it comes to changes, does he have a hard time with changes? Yeah, he hates change. Okay. He'd he cry if I change even his shit, sheets yeah, yeah. or shoes. Yeah. yeah, so that's something we want to keep in mind in general and see where else it shows up. Um, you mentioned even his teacher describes him as stubborn, so his stubbornness could come from being intelligent and he sees things and he wants it to be a certain way, but also part of his stubbornness could come from um, he has a hard time dealing with change or things not, not going his way. And so we take that awareness not to mean that, okay, we never do something he doesn't like, because that actually won't be good for him either. We want to be aware of what he likes and doesn't like and don't put him in lots of situations that hurt him. But we also have to be aware that if we coddle him too much and never let him experience these changes, then when life as he gets older becomes uh, more unpredictable or changes happen and things are out of his control, he won't feel like he can handle it. So that's another thing we have to keep in mind with him is that we don't want to just react to his reactions. So just because he doesn't like something doesn't mean we automatically say, well, that's not going to happen. Of course, it doesn't mean we don't care that he doesn't like it or we do it anyway, no matter what. But I just want you to be aware of that because a lot of parents, when we think our goal is just to make my kid happy and smiling, anything that makes them upset, we think we have to stop or take away. So that's just another thing to keep in mind with him. Always, as he's getting older, to keep in mind that we have to give him some challenges at times, even if he doesn't like it, but work with him. So we don't just change everything and make him feel very uneasy and anxious, but we don't want to just stop uh, life in order to make sure he never feels uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Yes. 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 Okay. Yes. So when it comes to the school decision, uh, to be like I said, I really don't know. There's not like when I'm hearing you talk, I'm like one of those sounds horrible and the other one sounds perfect. They all sound like they can have their pros and cons. He's comfortable at the Montessori school. And because of how we were just describing him, we can almost be sure that no matter what, he's not going to say he wants to change his school because that's a big change. Um, and if he doesn't like changes that are even small, of course, he's not going to like a big change. So uh, I'm glad you talked to him about it because that's good. We, you know, Even at his age, we want to um, make them part of the decision making and not just take control of their life without them being aware of what's happening. But even if it's the right thing to change the schools, we know that initially he's going to have a very hard time with it because that's how he deals with changes. Okay. You know? Okay. So do you think for, like, for kindergarten, should I, is it, is it make sense if I change his school for kindergarten? For one year, I sent him to new school, and then again, for first grade, I sent him to other school, or do you think that's going to really hurt him? Well, I'm not sure if it's going to really hurt him, but my first reaction when you were saying that is I don't know if there's a, you know, a need that the so you the kindergarten you want to send him to is because you feel like academically it's more challenging and that'll be good for him. Yes, okay. they think academically basically they teach them more than first grade uh, because they almost already know about first grade. Uh, I'm sending him to Kuman class at the same time too. Mm -hmm. So you know th this is um it's it's very hard to be a parent. You know this book I'm reading. Again, is another reminder of that, of how challenging and how many 
decisions parents have to make on a daily basis and then also bigger ones that come up here and there. But what I'm hearing from you, as I mentioned before, I do think it's important to keep him engaged. Sometimes you might have to give him extra or outside work. I don't want to make it extra as in working him so hard or find interests that he like likes. But I, I think what I see with parents is there's an over, um, almost exaggeration, but an over-focus on academics that, okay, if my son learns addition and subtraction before other kids learn addition and subtraction, that's good. So I have to send him to the school that will teach him these things faster than other kids. And these things matter in a slight degree, but it's not so important to me. And I don't want it to become something you get too focused on that, you know, if your kid is very smart, he's going to learn things and, you know, you send him to school and we don't, it's not that I'm saying they don't matter at all, but the obsession that parents can have with, okay, my child started reading at five, that child started reading at six. Okay. So that's good. And he's going forward and I want to make sure he's ahead of everyone. That obsession, I don't think, is good. And also, you start to put a pressure on the kids to to feel like they're being, uh, you know, constantly evaluated and their performance is so important and they have to stay ahead and they, they creates this stress. So if anything, um, I, and because he has some anxiety more than likely based on the fact that you're saying he you. uh, doesn't like changes, we don't want to put more pressure on him. If anything, I want you to focus less on his academics. Yes, we want to make sure he's not bored and pay attention to those things, but not put an extra focus on that, that we have to make sure academically he's doing so well, especially he's four years old. We only want to right now worry about his emotional well-being. And even as they get older, I work with parents who are dealing with kids in high school, and it actually breaks my heart to see how much pressure is on these kids about getting into colleges and their stressed and overworked and they're becoming robots doing clubs and extracurricular activities they don't even care about but just to make themselves a good candidate for college and so that over focus on the academics i think is actually hurting our young people more than anything um and we want to focus more on making sure emotionally they're doing okay they feel good about themselves and i don't mean this in a way that they shouldn't work hard i'm a very big proponent that everyone should work hard actually for themselves more than anything um, but, uh, you know, what I'm feeling from you is some anxiety about his academics. And that's something yeah. that I would m try to make less important. If he's a very yeah. smart child, whether he learns, you know, advanced math for his age now or a little bit less advanced is probably not going to have much of an impact on him. But the pressure and anxiety and if he feels bad about himself or feels bad about situations or... You know, if he starts to develop a feeling of perfectionism that he has to always do well, those things would worry me much more than anything related to academically what he learns in kindergarten or doesn't learn. Okay, all right. And um, one last question. Sure. Um, my son loves electronic, iPad, iPhone, and actually he's very good at it. He's better mm -hmm. than me. Uh, I try to limit it to two hours a day at night mm -hmm. when he did everything. Um, but and I try to uh, let him watch the like more like learning subject uh, mm -hmm. from iPad or iPhone or whatever. But is this okay? Should I give it to him? Should I take it away total? I, I mean, because some parents they think, oh, they should not watch it more than thirty minutes. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I do think less is more. You know, with these kinds of things, it does matter what they're watching. That that can make an impact. And at his age, I would also see if you can. Um, engage with him you know and i know you mentioned again his academics so i wouldn't worry so much about that all the time but that can be good but that you engage with him or his you know his father or someone is with him so it's not just this 
passive. He's sitting there and, um, you know, watching something for two hours every night. But you can also engage with him. So it has a social aspect to it, too. Um, so I don't I don't think, you know, starting today, you should just take away his iPad completely. That that kind of extreme change is for any kids going to be hard. But we talked about how much change is hard for him. But it's something to be aware of. I think um, to me, I look at electronics a little bit like junk food. If you start giving a kid junk food, he's going to want only junk food. And so if you give a kid six hours of electronics, they're going to want six hours every day and even more. So they start to, you know, and people argue about is an addiction or not an addiction or whatever. Um, but it definitely has qualities where it's hard for them to control and stop how much they are doing it. So be aware of limiting it. Um, you know, it doesn't mean you have to make it less starting today, but being mindful of that. And this even comes from a loving place when you talk to him about it, especially as he gets older, but it's not that you're saying, I don't want you to do it because it's fun. You're actually acknowledging, I know it's fun and you enjoy it, but we want to make sure we don't do too much of it. So we're going to help you in making it less. So it's not as a form of punishment that we set these limits. It's obviously coming from our love that we want to make sure they're not doing something too much that isn't good for them. And so, uh, you know, you, you, become aware of that and talk to him about that in a loving way of setting the limits, not in this punishing kind of way. If you're doing it too much and I'm taking it away from you, because we get it for him. It's just fun and stimulating. He's not going to want to stop. We can, we have to try to help him set those limits. Okay. All right. Okay. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Nice talking. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That takes us to another commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Luck. We will be right back. Back, you know, I wanted to continue some of the uh, themes that came up with the previous caller. Appreciate her calling in, figuring out where to take her son to school next year. And I know for a lot of parents, these kinds of questions can be very intimidating. They feel like they're going to make or break their children's academic lives, personal lives, emotional lives, and there's a lot of pressure on them. So I did want to talk a bit about um, school choice. But also about that, this theme uh, that I mentioned to her that parents can feel so obsessed with schools and academics and even with their kids' grades and that they oftentimes lose sight of really what should matter uh, or even their role as parents. And rather than being a parent and having a relationship with their child, they turn into academic managers. All I'm focused on is the homework is his or her homework done, their grades, what's going on at their school, what's going on in future schools, making sure they're getting set up to go to college. And they become obsessed and almost uniquely focused on that, on, on the school stuff. So I'll get to that as well. When it comes to school choice, um, there definitely is differences in schools. So I don't want to say it doesn't matter at all. But oftentimes we can make the differences seem or become too big that one school is going to be really good for them and one school will be really bad for them. When usually it's not the case. Um, overall, and I won't get into too much of that, I hope changes will be made to the schools in general in the United States um, from how we teach the over-focus on homework, the over-focus on testing and tests, and um, also another big issue related to schools that I'm passionate about is more equality and equity when it comes to schools we know that schools in poorer neighborhoods uh, can be much worse than public schools, which you think there should be some equivalency there if they're public schools in richer neighborhoods. Um, and this has impacts on the children and how they do all their students, but also on their futures 
as well. Um, so that's something to think about, especially on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, um, where it's not just about financial standing. We know that race plays a big part in the type of schooling that children are getting in our country, which I think is very unfortunate, but something we don't want to lose sight of. Um, so there's a lot that hopefully will be changed in our educational system here in the United States and a lot we can learn from other countries like Finland. But um, that's that's something that I have a big issue with. And so related to that, I think parents don't need to overemphasize this focus on homework and tests as well. But going back to school choice, um, first there's the idea of public or the decision of public versus private. I'm not uh, really a big fan of private schools. I'm not saying they're bad or they can't be good, but I think sometimes people think that it's so different or they should uh, definitely send their kids to private school if they can because they love their kids and if they can afford it, they should. But I generally don't see much of a a reason to make that make that decision especially what i think is interesting is when the kids get older i hear from a lot of parents you know i don't want my kid to go to public schools because there's drugs there and i want them to go to private school and i almost laugh because it's not that there's no drugs at the private school they might actually even have uh, more access to drugs and more access to expensive drugs than uh, the kids in a public school if anything but it's not that those drugs don't exist they definitely exist at all the schools and so um, you're not going to protect your kids from drugs by putting them in a private school. They'll still be exposed to them. At the end of the day, it's going to come down to what decisions they make related to things like drugs, alcohol, vaping, those things. But by sending them to school, you're not going to protect them and take those away from their environment. So private, public, uh, I don't see as big of a distinction as some people seem uh, to think uh, You know, would be good. And, and at times, actually, there's issues of diversity that also come up when you send your child to a private school where there might be less diversity in various ways. Something I think is important to keep in mind. Um, another issue related to schools is religious schools. And so let me make it very clear. I'm not saying anything against any particular religion or religious school. But in general, I'm not in favor of religious schools because my experience in working with children from different religions, uh, having schools from different religious backgrounds, is that they will, even if they don't try to, um, promote some ideas of exclusion, exclusionary thinking, um, even types of prejudice against the others, a very us and them type of mentality that I think can be hurtful. Is a sense of community good? Definitely. And so we don't want to lose that. So uh, there could be that that you get from being at a religious school or, of course, being in part of a religious um, group and going to church or synagogue or temple or mosque or whatever it is. And that's not necessarily bad or actually can be very good. But when you are surrounded constantly by messages of your religion, they can at times influence the way you look at other people and create a us versus them type of mentality. For So for that reason, uh, I tend to prefer against religious schools when it comes to making that decision. Religion is something you can teach or work with your children at home or send them to other types of classes. But I think making it part of their academic curriculum in life, I don't see that as a good decision. Now, coming back to parents in general and how they focus on their kids' academics, um, 
grades do matter. I'm not saying we shouldn't care at all, but what I see is that we care too much about the grades. And first, we have to look at ourselves and our own academic experiences. First of all, what were your grades? How did you do? How did you feel about grades? How did you feel about school? Um, as parents, you always have to be aware of how your own unfinished business and your own issues are going to affect how you are as a parent. So if you uh, didn't like school and got bad grades, maybe you're going to put too much pressure on your kids to get good grades, to make up for that, to be a star student. Or if you got really good grades, uh, you might have a hard time accepting your child coming home with a B. If you were used to only getting A's, you might look at a B as something really bad. Um, when it, it isn't, but you might have that mindset because of your experience. So you want to be aware of that and be very mindful of your own experience of school. Did you like it? Didn't like it? What kind of treatment from teachers, depending on how old you are and where you grew up? Maybe you had teachers that were even physically abusive or verbally abusive. Um, those types of experiences can have a big impact in how you're going to relate to your child when it comes to their schooling. So you want to have that awareness. And then so when it comes to their grades, we're aware of them. We notice how they're doing. But rather than just focusing on the grades, always see your whole child. Uh, something I always tell parents is an F to me is not an academic grade. It's more of a social emotional grade. If a child is getting an F in a class that they're supposed to be in. So yes, if you put a student who's never done algebra in a calculus class, they're going to get an F because they don't, they can't handle the material because they don't understand it. But if you put a child in the right class and they get an F, that's telling us something is going on. They're either dealing with some type of anxiety, depression, things at home, whatever it is. And I don't mean these to be excuses to say if a kid's getting a bad grade, we should say uh, they're a victim and it's, you know, they're nothing they're doing is contributing to it. But to me, an F is not a grade that we should be worried about just the academics. That's also a red flag that they're not doing okay. Something's going on. Or even it could be D or whatever other grade, very low grade. We want to pay attention to that as a whole person, not just, oh, my son has an F. How do I make it an A? Which is how some parents approach it. They just think about the grade part. Well, the F is bad. A is good. How do we change it? Okay, we're going to get him a tutor. We're going to do this. And those can be good things to get a tutor and other things. But we also want to look at your child and, okay, how is he doing? What's going on that he's getting an F? Is he okay? Um, and I hear from lots of parents things like, oh, no, he's okay. He's just being lazy. Or um, what does he have to be depressed about? I hear you hear this a lot when people... Uh, you mentioned what if your child is dealing with some emotional issue, emotional disorder. They think, why would my son be depressed or my daughter be depressed? We have money, we have things, you know, we're a happy family. There's no reason for them to be depressed. But depression isn't something that always has this cause that's very clear that they're depressed because of X um, or they're depressed because this happened or this is going on. And also um, for parents, we have to be aware not to take it personally if our kids have something going on. Yes, we might be contributing to it some way, so we have to take accountability and acknowledge that. But I think another reason why parents resist acknowledging that their child might be depressed is that they feel like it means I'm being a bad parent. That means I'm not doing enough or I'm a failure if I have a depressed child. So no, no, my child is not depressed. They're being lazy or they have time management issues or work ethic issues or something else. We don't want to look at what's happening underneath. So as a parent, Pay attention to your children's grades, not because uh, they're the most important thing, but they're because they're part of who your child is. But see your child more as a whole person. 
and don't become just an academic manager. Become a parent, which means you have a relationship with your child. You are not just their friend, but you have an aspect of being a friend where they can come talk to you about things. You are a support. You are someone that cares about them, that loves them unconditionally, that is going to be there for them. And make sure you're focusing on those aspects of your relationship with them. I think also we go to the grades and the schooling because it's an easier way of dealing with things, just focusing on grades, which are these clear-cut numbers or scores, rather than the messy part of relationships and talking to them about issues that they're dealing with and trying to get in touch with their feelings. Those things are a lot messier, unclear, and scarier for a lot of parents. So I think a lot of times they prefer just focusing on grades. And we take our parents, uh, our children's grades as reflection of grades of us as parents. So if my child has straight A's, we feel like oh, I'm being such a good mom or dad because my kid has straight A's. If my kid is getting C's and D's and F's, oh, maybe that means I'm a bad parent and I have to lift up those grades. And so as parents, we can feel like we're being reflected or our, our value as a person or our value as a parent is being reflected in our child's grades and their test scores when that's not really what's going on you have an impact on how they're doing of course but sometimes you might be getting in the way you might be making it worse or sometimes you might have a child that's just brilliant and is getting really good grades not because you're being so good but because they're just a good student or they're doing something on their own so don't think of your children's grades as reflection on you and i get it it's not a good feeling if you get called to your uh, child's teacher's office or the principal's office uh, that's not going to be a good feeling but remember that when you go to the principal's office or you're meeting with your child's teacher, you're their parent first, and you're there to make sure they're okay and they're good. And you're going to talk to the teacher, talk to the principal in a way that's going to help your child, not in a way that you have to defend yourself. Okay, your child got in trouble. That's okay. Or your child got an F. That's okay. Don't feel like you're the one being called to the principal's office, or you're the one meeting with the teacher. Again, this is where we have to look at our own issues and what we've gone through as children ourselves when we were in school, but meet with them in a way that's productive. And also related to that, um, I wasn't going to necessarily touch on this, but it comes up a lot. Sometimes parents are not too much on their kid's side, but in a way they're too much in the sense that they don't want to recognize where their children might have done something that wasn't good. And I see this come up when the teachers do call them in or the principal has an issue with the child and it's a disciplinary issue, that they just assume their kid is right and the teacher or the principal is wrong. And they want to attack them or sue them or change schools or do something um, when really maybe your child did something. And so, yes, it's good to support our kids and love our kids, but support doesn't mean that when our children do something wrong, we say it's right. We have to still hold them accountable and help them grow. So if they're in trouble at school, don't be against the principal. Don't also be against your child, but work with the principal or the teacher and with your child to see how we can come to a better solution. Don't just assume your child has to be right because you love your child and they're good and the teacher or the principal is bad. Recognize that something could be going on. Maybe your child did something wrong and it would make sense for there to be some consequences, and we don't want to leave it just to the consequences. We want to help them grow through what's happening or what's happened. Maybe learn about what happened that made them do what they did or relates to what they did and, and be there for them in that process. Um, so when it comes to your kids and school and even just in general, but even with school itself, grades are not the only thing that matters. Scores are not the only thing that matters. 
And also your job as a parent isn't as an academic manager. It's to make sure your child is growing and developing in the way they need to socially, emotionally. And of course, the academics are part of that as well. But don't just focus on the academics and lose sight of everything else. Because I think academics gives us a clear grade, whereas the other things don't. But don't lose sight of the fact that really what matters and your biggest impact is on how your child develops socially and emotionally, not just academically and with grades and test scores. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thanks for calling. Hi, thank you. Thanks for taking my call. So my daughter um, turned one uh, a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and um, I've been a full-time uh, working mom and, um, you know, um, exclusively breastfeeding. And with um, changing at age one and stopping breastfeeding, I'm finding it very difficult to actually, like, wean her off. So when I talked to the pediatrician, he suggested to just cold cut um you know, just one day not feed her. Um, and I have experiencing it very being traumatizing to her. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking for alternative options of the best way to do it without literally, like, when she sees me, she, like, you know, um, I honestly cannot say no to her. And I know mm-hmm. I have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, pretty much, you know, eight, nine hours a day, um, you know, four or five days a week. So um, not sure what I can really use as an alternative option to okay. um, kind of stop breastfeeding. Now, you said she exclusively, like she still only has breast milk or she's also eating foods usually at six months? No, okay. exclusive breastfeeding, but then, no, she's been eating solids too. Okay. So as far as, you know, yeah. Do you mean exclusively as far as there's, you're not using formula? Mm-hmm. Okay, Yeah, good. no okay. supplements. Yeah. yeah, all right. Um, and so weaning is going to be hard, and it's kind of, uh, in a way, funny because we usually think weaning is hard. We think about the kid, but weaning could be very hard for the mom as well mm-hmm. um, to mm-hmm. deal with the child's emotions. But also, you could be losing something too. There is a very yeah. intimate experience that mothers report having with their children during breastfeeding that you will be giving up as well. Um, and, you know, that's something to keep in mind is your own feelings about what's going on. Of course, we want to be very aware of what your daughter's going through, but you have to be aware of what you're going through as well. It uh, doesn't mean just act on those feelings, but be aware of how it's affecting you and what you're doing. Now, I know your pediatrician recommended cold turkey, which um, it, it, he's, you know, he or she is your pediatrician and knows you and the baby and much more than me about a lot of these things. But a lot of the, the research I've read usually recommends weaning doing it more slowly, incorporating more other foods and less of the uh, breastfeeding. Um, so yeah. I, I would recommend doing it that way. You're saying you, you yourself didn't like the cold turkey, and so you can make it less. Uh, but what's also important is to keep in mind, as I was saying, it's not just about what you know, you're losing as far as just the feeding part, but about the connection between you and your daughter. And so uh, oftentimes it's also recommended to amp up and increase the attention you're giving her uh during this process so making sure um it's not like she's losing so much of you and that it's going to be hard but that you you slowly also take that away but give her some more of your time and attention as well so what i noticed doing that is um 
her sleep pattern just completely changed. Like yeah. now we have stopped any like, you know, middle of the night feeding and she doesn't sleep really well. She used to be a very good sleeper, you know, mm-hmm. um, wouldn't wake up, would go to sleep at 8.30 at night, wake up at 5.30 for a feeding and then go back to sleep till like 8.30. Now she'll get up, you know, at 12.30 or 1 and I wouldn't feed her. I would just hold her and put her back to sleep and as soon as I try to put her back in her um, crib, she will wake up screaming. And as soon as I bring her to our bed, she'll quiet down. But I know that I'm creating a very bad habit of bringing her to our bed. So, um, I mean, this has been going on for the past um, two weeks of me trying to wean her off. I definitely do not feed her in the middle of the night. So it's just basically morning and at nighttime. But even that, I, I just feel like I'm messing up with her sleep. Or maybe it's such a change that she's going through at age one, because they say they change so much as soon as they turn one. Um, So I'm a little bit concerned as, um, you know, disrupting her sleep or definitely more clingy on me. And I I definitely know that they're all coming with part of the weaning uh, of breast milk. But um, I I just don't want her to, the pediatrician thinks that they don't know and they will not get traumatized. But I know Dr. Holopri has said multiple times that weaning should be really weaning and it shouldn't yeah. be like cold turkey and they have feelings, they know what's going on and, you know, you don't want to traumatize them. And I, you know, raised that concern when we had a one-year um, well check last week and he's like, oh, no, don't worry about it. You know, they don't know any better. And I'm not convinced that they don't know any better because obviously she knows better. That's why, you know, her sleep pattern has you know, yeah. completely... Well, and, right. And, you know, know any better is an interesting kind of word to, to say. I get it. Well, probably what your pediatrician means is they're not going to remember it as far as have memory of it, you know, so we don't have memories. Oh, I remember I was 11 and a half months old and my mom stopped breastfeeding and tried to do this. You know, we won't remember it in that type right. of a way. But we do know that what a child experiences does affect who they are and how they react and respond. So children who go through traumas, they won't remember the details. And I'm not saying this would be, you know, at the level of a trauma, but if they're in, you know, if there's fighting or if they are exposed to some really horrible things, it can affect how they are emotionally. And and, and so um, we want to be aware that although she won't be conscious of what's going on, let's say when you ask her five years from now, um, it doesn't mean it has no effect or impact. And so we want to be aware of how we treat her emotionally. Children uh, get affected by how quickly we respond to them when they're infants and they need us to change their diaper and feed them and other things. So um, we don't want to say, well, because she won't remember it, and it's also like a Persian saying, they, <laughs> I know they say you're going to get, they say it in Farsi, you'll get bigger and you'll forget this. Like you won't remember it. It's our own way of probably dealing with how uncomfortable it makes us feel. But just the fact that they don't have a specific memory for something doesn't mean it has no impact. So I think it's good right. that you're being mindful and care about her feelings. Um, of course, it doesn't mean just because of her feelings we don't do something or we have to we have to dictate our whole life based on something that makes her feel good or feel bad in one moment. Right. Um, but so I think it's going to be important to, to and it seems like this also feels right to you. I, I think this book... Um, the book of the week for this week, uh, Crib Sheet by Emily Oster, is good. I think it doesn't have anything specifically on weaning. It has a lot on breastfeeding. I don't know if it addresses weaning. Um, mm-hmm. But it can be helpful in like looking at different types of data about different decisions and then realizing you have to also make one that makes sense for you. So there's not one 
recipe that every child has to follow and every parent and parents have to follow, but figuring out right. what makes sense. So for you, your pediatrician recommended cold turkey. For you, it doesn't feel right. And so you don't have to do what feels wrong to you, whereas uh, weaning is not something wrong. So I would try just the weaning and be aware that, um, as I was saying, paying attention to your own feelings, maybe you're feeling a guilt that, oh, look how I'm disrupting her sleep. I'm making her, you know, have these negative consequences. Even you use the word traumatizing her. Uh, and those things will make you feel guilty and then could lead to you dealing with your own feelings and then also making more reactionary decisions based on her just to make her feel good so you don't feel so bad, you know? So, right. you know, it's going to be hard on you as well. And that's something to be ready for. Um, but just know that if you think that weaning is the right thing to do, you can, of course, still be flexible in some ways, but just that it's going to be a process. It's going to be hard for her. And you're right. We don't want to attribute everything that happens in these next days and weeks to weaning only. You know, she's also a growing baby and going to have other experiences and, and other things that are impacting her. Um, but it's going to be a process. And sometimes I think it's good to keep in mind everyone you know pretty much has gone through weaning and it can be okay. And I say that not that it doesn't matter, but that we don't get so scared because when you use words like traumatic, or traumatizing, I think you feel this huge stress about what you're doing to your child. And it'll be a challenge, and you want to make it as easy as possible for her. Right. But don't uh, make too much, put too much pressure on it, because then that'll actually make so, it worse. If I, like, um, you know, I talked to so many moms at work, and, you know, they were sharing that, you know, do, like, cut your morning first and then cut your evening after that. And I'm wondering, okay, so if she wakes up and I do not feed her, how much is okay for her to cry before mm -hmm. I give in or not give in? Like, how, like I know Dr. Holaku is very um, uh, persistent and um, he always want to make sure that you're not letting your, you know, 12-month-old or 13-month-old cry for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. So how much is it okay for her to cry before she you know, put herself to sleep or, you know, get on for the day or, you know, move on yeah. with her, whatever that she's going to be doing. Well, these things are, I don't think there's an exact, exact set time. I know, uh, you know, people will say, give you a number, which can be helpful. And maybe you want exact number. I don't know what the specific number would be. Um, but I would have things ready for her to you know for example that morning if you know there's a food that she really likes that might make it a little bit easier for her to have something else and be aware that it's also about the connection with you and so you want to have close contact with her now you might feel well if i'm holding her too close she might want to go and think this is, means we're going to the next step of having the breastfeeding so I, you know it puts you in this spot of you want to be close to her but you don't want to give her the signs that makes her think something is happening and then don't make that happen um, right. So I would have something ready for her that she really likes to eat in that transition. And if there's a times that are more difficult than others, um, mm -hmm. as far as the crying, I don't, you know, this goes back to that. Do they remember things? And sometimes when you look at research, they'll say, well, you know, kids, this happened and they're fine. And it's not that, again, we're talking about traumatizing them, but the impact of crying endlessly I think is negative. Now, it's hard to measure something like that, um, but I think it's hard to suggest that it has no impact. So I don't think more than 10, 15 minutes is good. Um, I know, okay. you know, I, I hear parents, they say stories about how they um, dealt with their kids and they cried and they cried for hours and then they're fine. And I, I don't know, fine to me is an interesting word to use or 
I was talking about this on Monday night's show, the word worked. So when people say something worked because a kid stopped crying, I have issue with that science because there could be consequences to it. So uh, I, I think not, you know, 10, 15 minutes seems like a more, for her age, more reasonable. But yeah. um, just keep in mind, I get the sense and you're a caring mom, you love your daughter, it affects you. So you start to feel some guilt when, you know, you think you're oh, hurting absolutely. her. Yeah. yeah. This, this guilt feeling, I mean, I, that's why I figured I have to call and see if there is any other way of me doing it. And, you know, everyone says there's, you know, there's no right or wrong way of yeah. doing things. You just have to do it pretty much. Yeah. And that's, I think that's true. A lot of times, of course, because you care so much, because you're so anxious about it, you want some answer that you know is right, is the best for her and is going to work. But really, kids are also unique, and if you apply the same exact thing to everyone, it's not going to work, and actually, right. you might not be seeing their individual differences. So um, it's being mindful of that, and you know your daughter better than anyone else in the world, so you see how she is, but especially keeping in mind that guilty feeling. It's understandable. You don't want to see her sad or hurt, but in that bigger picture, you're doing something to help her grow and develop and you're not being a bad mom, or if she's crying, it doesn't mean you're a bad mom. Um, but this is a challenge that you're, you're going through too, but it, she's going to be going through a, another growing pain, and you could have so many of these. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah. With, with, And what I see more than anything is more than the techniques, it's the way that parents approach it. So I see some parents, and they make potty training as if it's like a life or death type of a thing, and then that itself just creates more of a problem than earlier late potty training you know so that's true yeah. um so that's where i would really recommend checking in with yourself a lot about how you're dealing with the things and then yeah. how that'll impact it but it's going to be it's gonna be a tough couple of you know hopefully days or weeks however long it takes but she'll get through it awesome thank yeah. you so much you i sure? really appreciate your nice time. talking to you good luck take care thank you thank you thank you thank sure. you bye-bye all right why don't we take another commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 we'll be right back Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, yes. Uh, my question is uh, regarding those parents that uh, uh, they do unintentionally many things wrong mm -hmm. uh, to their kids. And then I feel so, uh, so guilty and mad uh, through myself. And I have so much grief toward my kids. Uh, when they were growing at their early ages, there was no internet, you know, but mm -hmm. I never let my kids cry, to be honest with you. And then I always uh, try to go to low wages jobs to have both kids uh, under my own, uh, you know, uh, views and then bring up, bring home a little bit of money. Um, but after elementary, because of my low knowledge, you know, plus migration issues and all those bullying matters, uh, a lot of uh, things I didn't know how to how to deal with it. Uh, I never had it in my own life, and then I had to uh, direct it to my kids. Is it's just like killing me? This mm. kind of feeling. Uh, well, you know, the that, that guilt yeah, can be very painful. And um, we talked before the break and you said 
what about those parents who have guilt about unintentionally ways they've hurt their kids? Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. I made a joke to you that really that's all parents because that's the yeah. truth. Every parent, um, I think everyone is trying their best in life in general, but as a parent and they love their kids so much, but even still they, the parents do things that do hurt their kids either from not knowing you talked about something about no internet and not knowing things that maybe, you know, now, um, yeah. also just our own weaknesses and things we're dealing with that make us all imperfect. So no matter what, even if we know we sometimes won't do it right. So, uh, self-forgiveness is a very powerful, uh, gift we can give ourselves. It's much easier said than done. It's very easy for me to just tell you, don't be mad at yourself, forgive yourself, but it is a process just like forgiving someone else is a process. Um, but we can talk a bit more about what you're feeling and what you can do. Now, have your children brought to your attention things that they're upset with you about, or is this just from your own reflection? Uh, both. They okay. bring things that they really upset with me. <laughs> mm. If I would have let them do this or that, you know. Yeah. Uh, but we had so much fear at that time. Yeah, so maybe the way you described something, you said I never let them cry or never, something like yeah, that. When they were little, yeah. they were little, I never let them even cry, you know. I, um, I, I was there all the time for their needs. Right. Although, you know, kids, kids cry. And so, you know, when I hear you say that, I understand what you're saying, but it does also uh, seem to suggest that you wouldn't let them at times feel things, or you maybe didn't let them face certain challenges, let's say. So if we make our goal not crying, then there's a lot of things we do that actually might interfere with growth. And it was coming from a good place. You loved your kids. You wanted them. You thought to just always be happy. It, as being yeah. a good parent means that. Culture, oh, yeah. Very yes. Yeah, big time. You're right. And, you know, you see it in other cultures as well, but I see it very strongly in the Iranian culture that never cry, never be sad. And then as a parent, yes. if your kids cry, you're bad. If your kids are happy and smiling, you're a good parent. And exactly. so we do anything to just avoid the tears, not realizing that means that we're avoiding feelings and avoiding life sometimes by doing that. So... We can understand where you are coming from, and this is going to be part of the forgiveness. You loved your kids, you love your kids, and you thought that to love them, you should make sure they're always smiling, make sure they're always happy. And so you did certain things, and now you can realize maybe weren't the best for them long-term or in certain ways, but we can understand where you are coming from. And I hope you can have that compassion for yourself to forgive yourself, to say, you are a mom doing the best you could trying your best because you loved your kids to do what you thought was the best way to love them and now you realize maybe you made some mistakes but as i said every parent on the planet every person on the planet is doing the best they can in everything but still making mistakes from not knowing or from our own weaknesses and shortcomings and so we have to give ourselves that space to be human and forgive ourselves as well and i say this Not that now that I've said this to you, I expect you to just change. It's going to be a process, but I want you to think about that mindset slowly and see how that can affect things. Are there specific things your kids have brought up that you can talk about? Like they said, you did this and I'm upset with you about this. I'm sorry, will you please repeat the question? Are there some specific things that your kids tell you, I'm mad at you about this specifically? Uh, yeah, like, for example, my daughter wanted to go to a cheerleading club, mm-hmm. 
And instead, I offered her go to basketball or go to gymnastics. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I registered her in basketball team, and she never liked it. She's always, always bringing that up, that I love to go to <laughs> cheerleading, mm-hmm. but you didn't let me go. <laughs> yeah. I think like this, yeah. <laughs> now, how old are your kids, by the way? Right now, my daughter is 20, my son is 16. 16? Yes. Okay, so they're still, I mean, they're they're not young, but they're also, you know, they're still, in a way, kids or teenagers or the 20-year-old just got out of teenage technically, but still in adolescence. Yeah. Okay. Now, how have your conversations been with them about these things? What do you say, let's say, when your daughter says that? Uh, yeah, I I said that, uh, that I'm sorry, I didn't know how to deal uh, mm-hmm. with the situation. I had, uh, like, different view of cheerleading, becoming a cheerleader, or the personality and the stories that I have heard. Uh, but, uh, you know, she doesn't respond to me, but she's not happy also with mm-hmm. my response. And uh, well, uh, well, that's interesting the way you said that she's not happy with your response, which in a bigger picture is very important, of course. But recognize that if she brings something up and you say sorry... Don't expect her to be happy about it, you know, and this goes back to the issue of wanting them to always be happy and having a hard time because that's telling us you have a hard time handling them being upset. And especially you're going to have a hard time with them being upset with you because then you feel even more guilty and you feel like I'm responsible. And so if anything that might make you handle those conversations worse than if she's upset about something else. And so be aware that, yes, I don't expect her um, just like I was telling, I don't expect you to forgive yourself because me and you were talking about it for a few minutes. I don't expect her just to forgive you because you said, I'm sorry. And then now magically it's going to disappear. That can be part of a process of her forgiving you, but don't expect it that, okay, I said, sorry, and she's still not happy. So what's the problem? You know, it's going to take some time and she's still young and there's still probably ways you might be doing the things that she doesn't like. So if I say sorry to you for something I'm still doing, it doesn't feel as good as if it's something from the past. So if she still feels like you control her or you don't let let her make decisions in her life, that sorry you give her will mean even less. Yeah. Uh, I don't uh, I don't control uh, on her decisions after 18. Mm-hmm. Even before 18, something like this, you know, we had to, she had to go through um, I mean, we are very confused, you know, I'm, I'm carrying uh, strongly this Iranian culture and then my kids born here and uh, they don't know anything about Iran mm-hmm. other than what they see inside the house, you know. Uh, but uh, myself uh, is very, very confused. I, <laughs> I don't know uh, how even to bring up the thing that that thing was wrong and i'm sorry you know i say these things but i don't know how to handle it practically yeah well they're very these are difficult conversations and difficult both for you and for them so we have to be aware of that that these usually these conversations very often can make people feel uncomfortable feel awkward and because of that sometimes they'll end it so you might even open up a discussion and um, they might stop you before you even finish. So related to that, you have to also be aware that 
if you want to have a conversation asking them for forgiveness or bringing up some past issue, it has to be the timing that they feel okay with. Now, because it's an uncomfortable conversation, they probably never will be excited to have that conversation, but there can be times that are worse if they're really tired or if they're doing something else. And sometimes parents or people in general, but especially parents, they'll have this big feeling and they'll say, okay, I want to talk to you about this now. And they'll go and their kid is not ready to have that conversation and they'll almost force their way into having that conversation. And of course, it's not going to go well if you do that. So one thing is you want to make sure the timing is good, meaning it's never going to feel great because it's uncomfortable, but better than other times. Now, another issue when it comes to these types of apologies that I've noticed is that parents, because you're talking about how much guilt you feel, if you get so overly emotional when you start talking about it, it does make your children then feel like they have to take care of you. So, for example, I've seen parents and they say, okay, I want to apologize to my son or my daughter for how I treated them or something I did. And then as soon as they start talking, they start crying hysterically and really strong. And, you know, they get so sad and they're crying and it becomes so dramatic that then rather than the child or teenager, however old they are, being able to share also their feelings. Yeah, you know, I was very hurt or I didn't like this. They might feel like they have to take care of you. So when you have these conversations with your kids, be aware that, of course, you're going to have some feelings. But if you become too overly emotional in a way that makes them feel like now they have to take care of you, it won't lead to a space where they can forgive you because they're going to feel like they might just tell you everything is okay or end the conversation to make sure you are okay in that moment. Uh, yeah, I don't uh, I don't go to crying, but okay. I, uh, I don't know, you know, if I know I need to go to uh, counselors, you know, uh, it's uh, something that I directly go to protection. Oh, this is, this might be bad because of this reason, that might be bad because of that reason, and they, they tell me, oh, you see everything bad, you know. Yeah. It, it's, if something like that comes to me and I keep lecturing, lecturing, <laughs> I see myself alone in, in the end. Of yeah. <laughs> in general, you're saying, or when you want to apologize to them? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, would you please? Sure. Do you mean in those conversations when you're apologizing to them or in general, the conversations yeah. go that way? When, when I'm apologizing. Yeah. And so and that's, that's a, yeah. It, and in general, I tell parents, you know, um, a good conversation or a dialogue means it's between two people. And so if you're giving a speech or a lecture, that's a monologue. That means just you're talking and that's not a good conversation. So always this is going to be true, but especially when you're talking about something like this, it's so important that of course, say your piece and what you're feeling, but keep it short and make sure you give them the space to say something because probably what you're doing is you start by apologizing, but then maybe you go into also justifying or explaining and then you go into a bunch of other things and I'm so it just becomes too much. So say, you know, I was thinking about when you were 16 and you wanted to join the cheerleading team and I didn't give you that choice and I signed you up for basketball because of my own assumptions. Listen, I feel really bad about that and I wanted to know what you feel about that or what you think about that. So make sure you try to create a discussion, a dialogue between you and them rather than just try to get everything out of your chest and, and say so much, you know? And then the other thing, if, it, if there is time still for me, sure. uh, that I realize mostly the Iranian people don't know how to 
relate, make relationship with our kids, how mm-hmm. to become friend with our kids. You know, I feel like I'm the mother. I have to just uh, tell my kids, this is right, that is wrong. This is right, that is wrong. You know, it's, uh, this is what I see in my yeah. motherhood <laughs> nature, you know. Sure. Uh, I didn't know how to start that friendship. I, I, I don't know how to do it. Well, it's good that you're aware of that. And you're going to have to try to change it, and it's going to be hard for you to change it. Um, but, yeah, first and foremost is that mindset of what does it mean to be a mom. And as you said, for a lot of parents, it's going back to what you said before. Make sure your kids are always happy and tell them what to do and what not to do. Protect them from the world that's so scary and dangerous and make sure they do the right things and not the wrong things. But you're realizing that doesn't really work and also doesn't allow you to create a good relationship with them. Now, you aren't just their friend. You are their mom, so it will be different. But there does seem to be space for you to have more of a relationship with them that allows there to be more of a back and forth, more of a connection. And that's what you're going to try to create, and it's going to be hard. Um, And even the whole notion of telling them what's right and wrong, the truth is you don't know what's right and wrong a lot of times, just like I don't know, um, especially for someone else. And so you have to try to take some of that away from yourself. I don't have to tell my 20-year-old what to do, what not to do. One, because you don't really even know what's right or wrong a lot of the times. And two, by not giving her the space to make her own decisions and then to deal with those, the results of those decisions, I'm taking away the space for her to grow and develop herself. You're actually hurting her. You're not allowing her to grow by saying you should do this, you shouldn't do that, even if it's the right thing to do. And if we tie it back, it all comes back to this idea that I'm supposed to make sure she doesn't feel bad. So if I think this thing could make her feel bad, if I'm a good mom, I have to stop her from doing that thing, not realizing that what you actually want to do is help her to make those decisions herself, see the consequences, learn and grow, and maybe even she feels a little bit down, but she'll grow from them. But they are telling you in a way you're overprotecting us. You're trying to make sure we don't get hurt. We, you're trying to make sure nothing bad ever happens to us. But that actually makes us feel worse and actually isn't good for them. So changing your philosophy of your role as a mom is going to be challenging. But I'm glad that just you calling and talking about it means you're aware that something does need to change. You just have to be ready that when you start making those changes, it's almost always going to feel wrong to you at first. Whenever we make changes, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel comfortable. But if you think about why you're doing it and become aware of your own feelings in the process, you might allow yourself to slowly shift in how you relate to your kids. I don't have to just protect them from everything. I don't have to tell them what's right and wrong. That's actually being a bad mom if I'm telling them always what to do and what not to do. I have to give them more space. I have to be aware that when they're sad, it's okay. Or that if they make a mistake, they're going to be okay. And give them that same feeling. Wonderful advice. Wonderful. (laughs) I hope it's helpful. It's going to be tough. I'm glad, like I said, you calling shows you have the awareness that you want to change. I'm happy uh, this time happened. You know, I, I there was uh, there was time for me on the line. <laughs> oh, oh, that's very kind of you. I'm very happy yeah, I got to talk to you as well. And you brought up issues that a lot of parents are dealing with. And, um, you know, you started off by saying, what do those parents do that have unintentionally hurt their children or done things that hurt them? And as I said, every parent and every person is doing that. So I hope along with working with your kids to 
acknowledge their pain and get that forgiveness from them for your relationship with them, you'll forgive yourself as well. I hope so. Thank I hope you so. so much. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Take care. For me too. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, going into our last commercial break, we'll be right back. Welcome back. The previous caller um, talked about being a parent and the perils and challenges of being a parent. And I think that's something that any parent can relate to is feeling some level of guilt or feeling bad about things they've done, things they didn't do, things they wish they had done differently as a parent. And as I said to her, it's something that means we have to engage in a process of self-forgiveness as well as acknowledging the pain of our children who we've heard in whatever age that is. Um, another interesting theme that came up, and I'm glad she was aware of it, she showed a lot of insight into things that were going on, um, is that she realized she wanted her kids to always be happy. And I actually talked about this last week, or maybe it was on Monday actually, about kids crying. That's right, it was Monday night, um, related to a video where someone was trying to get their kids crying by themselves crying. And people were saying, well, it worked because the kids stopped crying. But I took issue with it because it was invalidating the kids' feelings. It, to me, was not a good way of handling it. And this quote-unquote work that parents are focusing on is just that if I got my kids to stop crying, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter what I did to get that result. It's just that result that matters. And we want to focus on the process and what we're doing to get to those ends because they matter very much in how our children are going to learn and grow from whatever it is that we're dealing with. Um, but so to begin with, the philosophy of parenting that she has that most people have, and especially many Iranian parents will have, is what I call the pain prevention philosophy of parenting. They think my job as a parent is to make sure my kid never gets hurt in any way. Physically, emotionally, nothing bad happens to them. Nothing happens they don't like. They're never uncomfortable. They never feel awkward. Everything has to just be easy and smooth and good for them. That's how I'm a good mom or a good dad, is to make sure they never feel something bad. And this is very harmful in actually helping to grow and develop a child into a teenager and an adult. You're not helping to raise a good, strong, healthy adult if your only focus is preventing pain, preventing sadness, preventing any hurt feelings. Now, of course, you have to protect your children physically, make sure they don't get hurt in ways that are uh, unnecessary or too much. Emotionally, make sure they're okay. You're, you're definitely there as their guardians and their protectors. So I'm not saying don't care at all about these things, but we can't let the driving force be and our decision-making come down to, well, if something makes them feel bad, don't do it. If something makes them feel good, you should do it every single time. In general, that's going to work most of the time. But a lot of times in life, when we're dealing with important issues, if we use that as our guiding post, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Think about it as an individual. Um, okay, you have to do your taxes right now. Does it feel good to do your taxes or to not? Well, it's almost always not going to feel good, so you could do something else. You're a student. Does it feel good to study or to go have fun with your friends? No, you have to be aware of what you're feeling, but still do the thing that in the moment might not feel as good because you know it's better for you long term. And so for parents, an example that comes up is, okay, my kid forgot to do their homework. Do I write them a note 
Do I do it for them? What do I do? Because if the driving force is just preventing the pain, then I should do anything to prevent the pain. Nothing else matters. So I can do the homework myself. I can just take my kid out of school today. I can do a doctor's note or something, some way of getting them to prevent that pain. And when we have this as our guiding philosophy, you feel like, oh, I was such a good mom or dad. Did you see what I just did? I prevented my kid from feeling some kind of discomfort, from facing some type of consequence that didn't feel good. So I'm a good mom or dad. But what are we also teaching our kid? That there aren't consequences to bad actions or not doing something, um, that lying is okay, that making things up is okay, and that the most important thing is just that you feel good. So we are getting in the way of our children's growth when we do this. And here is where, as a parent, just as it is with an individual, we have to try to differentiate between two different types of pain or discomfort. There's a pain that means the result is damage, and there's a pain that the result is growth. And at times it can be hard to differentiate them because they feel the same or because they both don't feel very good in the moment, but they are very different. And a very simple analogy can be made at the gym. When you're at the gym, if there's no pain, there's no gain, as the old adage goes. If you want to build muscle or really have a good workout, you have to feel some level of discomfort, even at a more microscopic level when muscles... Uh, are going to grow when you're doing weightlifting, it's because of these small tears that happen in the muscle that then get repaired that creates more muscle that, or that makes the muscle stronger. There literally has to be some kind of pain or breaking in order to grow. So that's the kind of pain that leads to growth. But of course, you can be at the gym and if you're doing a workout wrong or using too much weights or overexerting yourself, you could damage your ligaments or your knee uh, tear, you can tear muscles, not in microscopic ways, but in big ways that create big problems and damage. So you can be hurting yourself. That pain could be signaling something bad is happening to you. So it can be sometimes hard to tell, but if you know your body well, and you're more in touch with it, you might be able to realize, okay, this is my muscles getting tired or no, this is something really bad for my back or my knees or something bad is going on. And I need to be aware of what I'm doing and maybe stop this. So of course I'm not saying that uh, all pain is good or pain is never something bad. It's signaling something to us. But the important things to differentiate, is it signaling damage or is it signaling growth? So with our kids, we have to do that same thing. We have to sometimes look at the situation and realize, even though it might not feel good to them, it isn't good for us to prevent the pain that actually will lead to them growing. Oh, your kid got in a fight with another kid at school. So what should we do? If we have the pain prevention philosophy of parenting, maybe we call the kid's parent or we talk to the teacher or taking it even more extreme and kid, parents will do things like this. They'll switch the children's class or they'll switch their school even just to avoid the conflict because the conflict doesn't feel good to them. But if we think about our child as a growing human being, we can think, okay, there's a conflict. It's okay. They can handle it. Um, we can help them handle it, but I actually want my child to face this because I know that he or she will grow from this. If they go and talk with the child and they resolve the issue, that could actually be a really great lesson for my child to see that conflicts happen, even between friends or just classmates or whoever the other child may be, and we can work through them. They're not something we have to be afraid of. They're not something that means end of a relationship, which unfortunately many people have this conclusion that if you have a conflict, that's the end of the relationship. And many people and many Iranians do this. 
they have one fight one time 20 years ago and they never talk again and they never make attempts to resolve the issue. They just think that means end of the relationship. So your child has this conflict. We can actually see it for an opportunity for growth that they can handle rather than something we have to just prevent the pain and make sure they don't feel bad about anything. And so this also relates to a mindset that we can handle and our kids can handle more than we tend to give ourselves credit for. We think that, okay, they're going to be so sad, they're going to be so upset, it's going to be so bad for them, but they're going to be okay. They might have an uncomfortable conversation, but they'll be all right. And that does beg the question of looking at ourselves and how open are we to experiencing some discomfort in the name of growth, in trying to grow as a human being. Don't we often avoid an uncomfortable conversation because it might not feel good or we don't know what's going to happen. And so we actually take away opportunities for our own growth. And so then we pass this on to our children as well. So we have to be aware that as a parent, my job isn't to prevent pain. And uh, it's impossible to prevent all the pain. Even as I'm saying, it's not good for us. On top of that, even in the good pain, your children are going to get hurt sometimes or the pain that we want to avoid, they get hurt. That's part of life. We get hurt. Um, I don't always like the adage or the saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger because sometimes things can cause damage and you actually don't become stronger. But nonetheless, what doesn't kill us didn't kill us. You're still okay. You're still there and you can survive that. And your children can take a lot more than you realize. This doesn't mean we intentionally inflict pain on them or that we don't care when they're in pain, but we recognize they can handle challenges and hardships. And a little bit of that challenge and hardship actually helps build resilience, helps build perseverance, helps build the grit that they're going to need to persevere through life, to make it through life and to be successful personally and professionally in whatever it is they want to do. If you want to have a good relationship, you have to be willing to face some uncomfortable feelings, some uncomfortable conversations. If you want to be successful in a personal way, professional way, you also will need to face some discomfort, challenges, overcome setbacks, and go through some things that won't feel very good in order to get to whatever you want to get to. So as a parent, we have to take this step back and look at what is my philosophy in parenting when it comes to my child. Am I only focused on pain prevention? and making sure they never feel down, never feel sad? Or am I aware that I'm trying to help a human being grow and develop physically, emotionally, um, psychologically, and in every aspect of who they are? And when we recognize that, that it's not just about pain prevention, we shift the way we do things. Because if we're just thinking about pain prevention, as many parents are, we're just thinking of what can go wrong and what's going to be bad or what could hurt them rather than seeing the opportunities for growth. Oh, he's going to go to that camp. Well, he might not like this. He doesn't like that. He doesn't like this. Let's just don't send him to that sports camp because he might feel uncomfortable. Rather than saying, okay, he's going to go there. He's going to be meeting new kids. He's going to learn new things, challenges. He physically will push himself. He might get into, you know, there might be some older kids. That could be a challenge. But we recognize the challenges and we're going to support him in this process. That's a very different mindset. And your children are going to internalize the way you view life and the way you view the world. If you show them that all we're trying to do is make sure we avoid pain, if we don't like something, we go away from it. If something makes us uncomfortable, we go away from it. They start to internalize this feeling that the world is a scary place, that we should always try to avoid anything that can be bad, that we can't handle something when it's bad. And so because of that, we have to live a very safe and sheltered life. And now when they face those inevitable 
pains in life, they face inevitable challenges of life, they won't feel like they can handle them. So we want to show our kids from a young age that you are more resilient than you think and that we believe you are too. I actually see this a lot with uh, parents of even adult children. They still have this mindset of, oh, my, my poor son or my poor daughter, this happened to them or this is happening to them. Not realizing that when you give them that message, you might think it shows how much you care about your kid. Look how much I care about my son or my daughter, even though they're an adult, that when something bad happens, I still have such a strong reaction. But what you're also saying is, I don't think you can handle this. I don't think you can take this challenge or withstand what is going on. I need to either come help you or I need to feel sorry for you. But really what your child would feel even or benefit from, and this is a young child, but even especially an adult, is that, oh, okay, I can see that's going on, but I believe that you can take care of it. You're going to be okay. I have confidence in you that you're strong enough to handle this situation. So we care. So it's not we don't say we don't care if they're going through something, but we also show them we have that belief and confidence in them that they can overcome this, they can withstand this challenge, that they have the skills, the abilities, and the mental, physical, emotional strength to overcome this. And so you also want to give that message to your kids. You're there with for them, you support them, and of course, the younger they are, the more they need you, but you also show them that you have hope in them and believe in them. Your kid is playing and they fall, you can freak out and say, oh my gosh, something happened and go and try to take care of them. One, you're going to make them even more scared, but you're also showing them they can't handle it. So of course we don't ignore their pain. We see how they're doing, but we know, okay, you know, he's back up and he's running around or she's up and she's back on the slide and she wants to do it again. We show them that they are resilient, that they can handle things and that we want to help them embrace and face challenges rather than take away opportunities for them to grow. And also just bringing it back to, in a way, what seemed to initiate or prompt her to call, we do want to forgive ourselves as well. So even I know in what I was just saying, it seems like I'm lecturing parents on how to be a good mom and dad and not to be a bad mom and dad. So I'm saying you're doing something wrong if you're not doing it this way. But it is important to have that recognition that even if I try my best, I'm going to do things that hurts my child. The good news is that even when you do some things wrong, people and kids turn out okay, as all of us have had things happen to us, so that's okay. And also I'm human, so due to my lack of knowledge and knowing things, and also due to my own weaknesses and issues that I have, I'm of course going to do some things wrong, but I'm a human being. I will make some mistakes. I will acknowledge them when I recognize them or when they're brought to my attention. If your child as a child or as they get older tells you, I will acknowledge and apologize for what I've done. But I will recognize that I can have guilt about something that happened in that moment, but I won't shame myself and make myself feel bad for doing something when I know as a human being that's part of being a parent. We're going to make mistakes, and that's okay. As long as we can acknowledge them and try to grow from them ourselves, That then we know we're doing something about it. But to deny them because we don't want to acknowledge that any pain has been experienced, that's actually going to hurt our kids even more. But I'll I'll stop there because we're at the end of today's show. Again, the book of the week for this week is Crib Sheet, A Data-Driven Guide to Better, More Relaxed Parenting from Birth to Preschool by Emily Oster. So it is about parenting. As I mentioned, 
there won't be any live shows Monday because of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. So I'll talk about that book on Wednesday's show. Thank you to all the callers and listeners. I had a Hazode at the beginning of the show and Fahri here to close out the show. Thank you to them as well. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahri We Have a wonderful day. Thank you.